0: Well, try as I might, I can't seem to get away from King David and his psalms. You know, we've been studying selected psalms for several weeks now, many weeks, and uh, I mentioned at the very beginning of this series, uh, we're calling it Hymns of the Faith, uh, that David, of course, wrote half of the 150 psalms, and uh, it seems like we've had an un- equal amount of focus on Psalms written by David so far in this series. So this week I decided I would <clears throat> just try to randomly pick one. So open up my book Bible to the book of Psalms, close my eyes, and let my finger drop, and it was still a Davidic psalm. So I guess it was meant to be. Uh, not really actually, but that does remind me of uh, the fellow that decided he would start, uh, he was having trouble reading the Bible, having trouble understanding it, it was all complicated, so he decided he would just leave it up to the Holy Spirit and randomly open his Bible, close his eyes and let his finger drop and whatever the verse landed on, he would try to apply it. So he tried that and his finger landed on, and Judas went and hanged himself. So he thought, well that can't be right, let me try that again. So he closed his Bible, closed his eyes, opened his Bible, dropped his finger and the verse said, Go thou and do likewise. So he said, wait a minute, something's not right here, let me try this again. He tried it a third time and his finger landed on, What thou doest, do quickly. So he finally gave up. So and by the way, if that's the way you're studying the Bible, you need to come to our Wednesday night series that's kicking off this Wednesday on how to read and understand the Bible and we will give you over the next several months some tools for correctly handling uh, the Word of God. But we're going to be in Psalm 19 today and I'll introduce uh, that psalm, again a Psalm of David, uh, here in just a moment. But back uh, in the days when butchers made house calls, a mother was uh, waiting for her butcher to make a delivery. And she told her son, Johnny, I'm going upstairs for a bit. If the butcher comes, uh, let him know. Uh, let, Let me know. I want to talk to him. Well, not surprisingly, little Johnny forgot who it was that her mom was expecting. And so when the preacher stopped by unexpectedly, uh, Johnny hollered upstairs, Mom, that man's here now. And Johnny's mom hollered back, Well, I, I can't come down right now. I'm in the middle of something, but, but just give him the money from my purse and tell him we didn't like his tongue last week, so we're going somewhere else. <laughs> Ouch, All right? Words mean things. Words mean things. So what do your words mean? I want you to think about that question as we go through this uh, message this morning. So Psalm 19, uh, of course, a Psalm of David written about a thousand years before Christ. And in this short Psalm of 14 verses, David observes that under the influence of the sun, the heavens make God's handiwork in His creation known to everyone. Everyone can see there's a God, and He's the great Creator. Uh, In fact, it's similar in this sense to what we read in the New Testament under Paul's writing in Romans chapter 1. But David also talks not only about God's revelation through creation, but about God's revelation through His Word. If you were here last week, you know we talked about um, in Psalm 119, which is an anonymous Psalm not written by David that we know, uh, about God's Word. And David in this psalm kind of echoes, as we shall see in a moment, some of the thoughts that that lengthy psalm, 176 verses, uh, had about God's special revelation in uh, the written word. And so in view of God's dual revelation in nature and in scripture, David in this psalm prays that God would cleanse his life so that he would be acceptable to God and honoring to God. It's really a prayer prayer for personal cleansing. In the ancient Near East, uh, this psalm would have represented a very strong argument against the pagan sun gods and those who falsely worshiped uh, nature. Because the psalmist here claims that Israel's God, Yahweh, and he actually uses two different words for the name of God in this psalm, the Creator of the heavens and the earth is the one true God. He's the only one who can Correctly judge injustice and righteousness, and holiness. So we talked in our Bible study hour, the nine o'clock hour on uh, Sunday uh, that we have here on Sundays about that future day when uh, God will judge the earth. And here, David, a thousand years before Christ, so three thousand years ago from our perspective of, of today, is talking about God, the righteous judge, and the great Creator. So let's dive in in verses 1 through 3. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So the psalm begins with an extended metaphor about speech. And then as we shall see, it ends with a direct reference to the words of our mouth. It's almost as if The voice, metaphorically, of God's creation motivated and inspired and encouraged David to speak with words that are pleasing uh, to the Lord. So verse 1 there, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork, is really a summary statement of the whole psalm. The heavens refers to what appears in the sky above us. The firmament or sky is the canopy that seems to cover the earth. Uh, from our vantage point anyway, as we look up. It's uh, a synonym for heavens there. This is a parallel poetry here. Heavens is a synonymous with the firmament. So the glory of God points to the splendor of the Creator. As we look up, we see the amazing handiwork of God. So uh, there, there's a... the, the uh, if we read on in verse 4, he says, Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So the whole earth can see God. That's one of the things that makes uh, God's general revelation in creation so powerful is that there's no place you can hide from it, right? Wherever you go, you can see nature. If you look up, you can see the stars and the moon and the sun. If you are out in the uh, nature, you can see trees and you can see oceans if you're in that part of the world. Or you can see lakes and rivers and creeks. and So it's hard to hide from that. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. So notice the two figures of speech here. Like a bridegroom and also like a strong man. So God has placed the sun in the heavens. God, not the sun, is supreme. the ancient Near East, the people in David's day of the pagan lands around him worshiped the sun. Uh, And David is making the point here that God's the one that put the sun in place. So those figures that you see in yellow there of the bridegroom and the runner picture the glory and power of this centerpiece of God's creation. So indeed, the sun is uh, central, but it's not a god in and of itself. God put it there. It's so glorious, David said, that its creator must be even more glorious. That's uh, the idea there. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now in those first six verses that we just read, the name uh, that is used of God is the the title El, like Elohim, but just shortened to El. And it's a title that throughout the Old Testament really emphasizes the power of God. The literal translation would be the strong one. But what we're going to see if we move into the next section is that David changes what word he uses, and he uses the word Yahweh. We've talked a lot about that. If you go back and look at some of the messages we've had in this series so far, I kind of gave you uh, the rundown on that word Yahweh. And in our English translations of the Hebrew Old Testament, anytime you see the word LORD in all caps, like it is here in this, these verses, that's an indication that it's translating the word Yahweh and this of course is the personal name for God that stresses his covenant relationship with his chosen nation Israel and then as the New Testament makes clear with us as well that we are all uh, heirs to the promise and seeds of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. So the revealed word of God has the same dominant influence over humankind as the sun does over nature whereas the sun restores natural life the law and notice the different words for the Bible here in this section. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, fear of the Lord. There's just a synonym for you know, His word, kind of a metonym. And then the judgments of the Lord. We looked at all of those words last week when we were in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, if you recall, uses 10 different Hebrew words to refer to what we now know as the Bible. And so, um, just as the sun restores natural life, the law restores life to the human soul. The sun dispels darkness, but the word of God removes the darkness of ignorance from our understanding. It's flawless and reliable. It brings joy and wisdom to people because it is always correct, as we talked about uh, last week. So then he goes on to say, it is more to be desired... Than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your words, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So David recognized that the words of God are more valuable than gold, which was the most expensive substance in his day, and more pleasing and satisfying than honey, the sweetest substance that he could think of. God's words warned David, as they do us today, of error and danger and mistakes that would only lead to difficulty. And they brought him rewards by following the words of Scripture. And then he goes on to say, almost introspectively here, who can understand his errors? In other words, apart from the Word of God, how are we going to have any standard of reflection that can tell us we've stepped out of line. And that's what he means here when he says, cleanse me from secret faults, keep back your servant also from pres- presumptuous sins, secret and presumptuous there, referring to sins that he didn't realize he'd committed. In other words, there are things that people do who are not either not believers, so they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help illumine the Scriptures for them, or even believers who aren't in the Word and don't really study the Word, who then don't realize some of the things they're doing is wrong? Doesn't make them any less wrong, but they 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 don't understand their that they're making an error is what David said. They don't understand that they're making a mistake. So the word of God, David said, kind of shows me when I'm stepping out of line. Um, you just can't know when you're violating God's principles if you don't know what God's principles are, and. Even though the Bible tells us that we all have a conscience, ultimately at the big macro level, recognizing there is good, there is evil, there is morality, we can't really fine tune our lives without a standard. You've got to have a finish line, if you will. You've got to have boundaries, right? We were at a volleyball game uh, this weekend for our daughter, and um, it was in a gym where the uh, ceiling was lower than you would normally have in a gymnasium, and it was very common for the volleyball to hit the ceiling. And there was some confusion over the rules because, evidently, if the ball hit the ceiling on your side of the court, if you hit it and it hit the ceiling on your side and came back down on your side, you could still play it. It was in play. But if you hit it and it went over the net and hit the ceiling on the opponent's side, it was out of bounds. It was as if it had landed outside the, the boundaries. And not knowing, and this is our team's first year to play, people weren't really sure what the rule was. You need rules, you need boundaries, you need guidelines to show you when you've stepped out of line. Otherwise, it would be chaos. Could you imagine playing a volleyball game when they didn't have the boundary markers? And it was just sort of up to subjective guess as to whether you stepped on the line when you served or whether the ball was hit out of bounds. I mean, that would be utter uh, chaos. And so David sees the word of God as reflecting uh, the, the, the standard. And so that's how he can understand uh, his errors. And then the last verse, which is one of the ones that kind of led me to talk about what I want to talk about today. In closing the psalm, he prayed that his words and his thoughts would please God. He viewed his words and thoughts as sacrifices to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. reminds me of what we read at the end of our study of Hebrews. We finished that 33-part series here before we started Psalms, and in verse 15 of Hebrews 13, we read, therefore, by him, Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. And that's the way David saw his words. He understood that controlling his tongue was an important part of personal cleansing and personal godliness and holiness before the Lord. So if I could summarize the teaching of Psalm 19, it would look like this. God's revelation in both nature and Scripture should motivate us to bow in humble adoration and willing obedience before our Creator. God's revelation, both in nature and in Scripture, should motivate us to adore Him and obey Him and recognize Him as our our Creator. So what I'd like to do now is, for the rest of our time is just kind of shift our focus to words. You know, David started this psalm with a metaphor about words, talking about how nature speaks that there's a God. And then he ended with a very literal reference to the words of our mouth and how we need to be careful about those words. Words mean things. And I'm asking this morning, what do your words mean? So I've got five just categories that I've kind of, as I looked uh, through Scripture at the teaching of God's Word on speech and language, mostly from Proverbs, but a few other passages as well, that I think if, if we were to sort of give a theology of words, It would break it up into these five categories. I'm going to talk about the power of words, the purpose of words, the peril of words, the penalty of words, and then the profit of words. So let's talk about the power of words, uh, words uh, to be impressed by, you might say. First of all, words, the Bible tells us, have the power of death and life. Words have the power of death and life. Proverbs tells us death and life are in the power of the tongue. You, know, you can see how this would easily play itself out. The easiest example would be uh, in a trial situation where an eyewitness testimony, where under oath a person uses their words to give testimony, could literally lead someone to be found guilty of capital murder and face the death penalty. So, indeed, there's a classic example where words have the power of life and death. Words also expose the heart, the Bible tells us. Words expose the heart. Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So words have a source, and the source, the Bible tells us, is the heart. Maybe that's why Proverbs tells us to keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life Uh, in Proverbs 18 the words of a man's mouth are deep waters the wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook or in Proverbs 26 fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver dross in other words if you look closely you can tell whether a bowl is sterling silver or just silver plated And this proverb is reminding us if you listen closely, you can tell whether someone is speaking wisdom or just blowing smoke, right? You can tell. And then Proverbs 27, As in water face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man. We cannot surgically open up a person's heart to see what's in it. But we can tell what's in a person's heart by listening to their words. By listening to their words. And by the way, in that famous passage that is so often uh, quoted, or maybe I should say misquoted from Matthew 7, which we just looked at Luke's similar account where Jesus says the same thing, where people talk about, by their fruits you shall know them, that passage has nothing to do with identifying whether a person is a Christian based on their behavior. In fact, nowhere does the Bible ever tell us to look at a person's behavior to determine whether they're a believer. There are passages that people use to make that case, but they're all misunderstood. Because we're not saved by works or behavior, we're saved by faith. And Christians, frankly, can behave very poorly and walk in the flesh. And non-Christians can behave very morally. So if you're looking at behavior to gauge whether someone's a believer or not, you're going to be in danger of coming to a wrong conclusion, being misled. We're never told to look at our behavior or our performance to determine whether we're a believer because we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if more than 160 times the New Testament tells us the only condition for receiving eternal life and becoming a Christian is faith alone, then what's the best way to determine whether someone's a believer? Hear their testimony. Ask them how they came to know the Lord and listen to their words, and if they say things Uh, that clearly indicate they're not a believer, like, oh, well, I was baptized, or I go to church, or I'm a good person, or I was raised in a Christian home, or I've always been a Christian, or those are the kind of answers that people give that I've seen through the years. Well, then that's based on the authority of God's Word. You know they're, they're probably not a believer. But if they say, well, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who could save me, they're probably a believer. I mean, ultimately, the only one that knows for sure they're a believer is you, You can be absolutely 100, 1,000% sure you're a believer because Jesus promised, if you believe in me, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish, period, full stop, end of discussion. So you can know, and if you're doubting your salvation and you've believed the gospel, you're sinning. Because if it's a sin to doubt your salvation. It's like saying to Jesus, I know you said you gave me eternal life, but I don't believe it. So people spend their life doubting whether they're a Christian or not because they've been so conditioned by bad teaching to look at their behavior So every time they mess up, they think, oh, maybe I'm not a Christian. No, no. Jesus promised, if you believe in me, you have, present tense, eternal life. You're a believer. Stop doubting. (laughs) So the only two people that can know with 100% certainty that they're a believer are you and God. Now, we can make reasonable uh, conclusions based on a person's testimony of what they say. But, you know, uh, I've been studying Second Peter in preparation for one of two messages I'm going to be giving in Duluth, and it talks about how false teachers sometimes creep in. So there are liars, and sometimes people, for ulterior, nefarious motives, might lie and say, Yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I've trusted in Jesus Christ. But really, they're snakes and vipers coming in to, to do danger. So people will lie. So you can't, but, but basically, you can, if you hear their testimony and they say, they've expressed faith in Jesus Christ, then, then you can take them at their word, and most, most of the time they're a believer. But you never want to look at a person's behavior. But what Proverbs is saying here is that one of the powers that words have is that they expose the heart. And by listening to words, we can tell what's in the heart. Another power of words is that they pierce like a sword, the Bible says. Words can pierce like a sword. Proverbs again, verse 12, or chapter 12. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. Or Psalm 57, another psalm of David. And the Bible tells us this is when he fled from Saul into a cave. And he says, My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Tongue can be sharp can be very uh, sharp in Psalm 64 another Psalm of David David says hide me from the secret plots of the wicked from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity listen who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows bitter words he says you know words can really hit you where other weapons cannot you ever thought about that you know, uh, words are in many ways more powerful and harmful than a gun. Because, you know, a gun, you've got to have good aim, you've got to have practice, you got to kind of know where you're aiming. And you may, you know, aiming for a, an intruder or an enemy who's coming to kill you and you may misfire and you may hit the leg or the arm. But words have a broad scatter effect. And you don't have to be exactly targeted. The minute they leave your mouth, they will find the most painful target and hurt. They pierce like a sword, the Bible says. They're also hard to control. Words are hard to control. James tells us, no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. And consequently, uh, words leave an indelible mark. They leave an indelible mark. Proverbs tells us the words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost being. The phrase tasty trifles there, don't be misled because it's actually a Hebrew idiom for wounds. So, in other words, words can leave a lasting scar, an indelible mark. You know, we all know that feeling, those painful words that still lurk deep down in our minds and keep creeping up from time to time that somebody said. It's nearly impossible to get rid of the indelible mark of words. Once they've gone, you can't get them back. So that's the power of words, at least a few that I uh, have seen in Scripture. But what about the purpose of words? What does the Bible tell us? Well, first of all, words are intended to express our love for God. You know, words predated humanity. God spoke the world into existence, and man, man wasn't made till the sixth day. John John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the living incarnate Word. And so one of the purposes that God has for language or for words is to show Him love and to praise Him. And David in Psalm 51, his great uh, penitent prayer after uh, Bathsheba. He says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. My mouth shall show forth your praise. Going back to Hebrews 13, I quoted this a moment ago, but it's the fruit of our lips that give thanks to His name. So words express love for God. Words also serve the purpose of showing love for others. Showing love for others. When you come to the New Testament, in the body of Christ, we have a lot of teaching in God's Word about how we are to interact with others. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, Paul says, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Words mean things. What do your words mean? As you're talking to others, are they imparting grace? Words also express a love for the lost. A love for the lost. Let's not forget the Great Commission. As Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching them. Well, you can't teach without words, right? I mean, sure, there are life lessons. There are examples that are set. I get that, and the Bible talks about that. But when it comes to evangelism and the evangelistic enterprise, it's got to be words. That's why we've talked about that before in our Wednesday night study, but, you know, the Bible is very clear that, you know, the gospel must be communicated in words. You know, uh, you think about Cornelius, who got the vision, and he said, they told him, Peter would come and he would tell you words by which you must be saved, right? So, it's important to set a good example. We are to, you know, shine like stars in this perverse generation, Paul says. So we're to set a moral standard, um, but people aren't going to get saved because they, you know, observed me, you know, uh, following the speed limit or stopping at a stop sign or using my signal appropriately. I mean, even if they did get saved by doing that, they wouldn't get get that for me because I don't always <laughs> observe a speed limit. But that was the analogy that came to my mind. So, but well, you see my point. When you do good things. Yeah, people may notice, but that's not going to lead them to place their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. They've got to hear the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So that's one of the purposes of words, is to show love for God, love for others, and love uh, for the lost. But what about the peril of words? You know, uh, Words can kill the spirit. Words can kill the spirit. Proverbs 18 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. The spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? Words kill the spirit. They kill friendships. They kill friendships. How many friendships have been broken because of one ill-spoken word that the person wishes they could have back? And just like that, friends are separated forever. What a tragedy. Listen to what Proverbs says. A perverse man so strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Words can kill friendships. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Or Proverbs 11. The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. The peril of words, words can kill productivity, right? You ever stop to think about that? I remember uh, when I was in seminary, I was about 22, 23 years old, working at a warehouse, uh, loading trucks. And the company that I worked for received a contract from a big Northeast company that was moving their headquarters down to Texas. And so we ended up spending several weeks out on a job site, helping move furniture off a truck into this big office building, multiple stories, there were dozens of people on the crew, and and another buddy of mine that also went to seminary where, where I did, we found ourselves getting into these heated theological discussions as seminary students are prone to do, because you know everything when you're a seminary student, and uh, more than one occasion our supervisor would come around a corner and find us not working as hard and deliberately as we could as we were pushing a desk on a dolly down the hall because we were engaged in conversation and he would say, Pick it up, pick it up. This isn't the time to talk. So we'd wait till he went around the corner and then we keep talking. But anyway, uh, Proverbs says, All labor, in all labor there's profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. See, words can kill productivity, words can kill trust. Words can kill trust. What did Solomon say? Do not curse the king even in your thought. Do not curse the rich even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice and a bird in flight may tell the matter. You may have heard me say this before, but when I was growing up, one of my mom's many sayings that still rings in my ears, and, and when I say rings, I mean painfully, uh, She, when I would say, well, how did you know that? She'd say, a little birdie told me. <laughs> well, this is what she was talking about. A little birdie told me, right? So, words can kill trust. Let's look at the penalty of words. We know, according to God's word, that words will be judged. Jesus said very plainly, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. And he's talking here, by the way, in the context about, by their fruits you shall know them. What is the fruit? What comes out of your mouth, as I mentioned a moment ago. Another penalty of words words have consequences. We know that words uh, have consequences. Back to Proverbs in, verse, in chapter 13. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Or the wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. In other words, what you say has consequences. It, can, it, it has a penalty. But then let's look at the prophet of words. The prophet of words. Uh, I call this uh, seven words to live by. Seven words to live by. First of all, silence. (laughs) (laughs) That should be at the top of everyone's lips. Proverbs says, In the multitude of words sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Or even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perspective. You know, like so many of our phrases today in English, the, this one gave rise to another common saying in English, better to remain quiet and be thought a fool than to open your lips and remove all doubt, or open your mouth and remove all doubt. Or if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, right? Uh, you know, some of the best sermons I've ever preached are sermons I never preached. You know, and I'm not very good at that at all, but it's a principle. Another word to live by is knowledge, is knowledge. Going back to Proverbs 18, we said, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Get the whole story, get the facts, look into the situation, don't just rush to judgment and spout off. Another word to live by is discretion, discretion. Remember, a, a, a tale reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Words to live by. Another word to live by is timeliness. Timeliness. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season, how good it is. I mean, we can all think of times when, out of nowhere, someone says just the right encouraging thing that just lifts our spirits. It was what we needed to hear. And those moments are especially meaningful when it comes and it's clearly the leading of the Holy Spirit because the person had no idea you needed to hear that, no idea what was going on in your life, and yet God the Holy Spirit leads someone to come across your path. Maybe it's a actual person-to-person word of encouragement. Maybe it's an email or a text or you who knows. But a word spoken in due season, how good it is, timeliness. And I love this uh, proverb here, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Now, um, I was talking to uh, Fred uh, last week. We spent some time together going to a a pastor's meeting and he happened to mention that he has a perfect illustration of this verse. So I, I brought it, or he brought it for me to use this morning, but here is an apple of gold in a setting of silver. So it's actually quite heavy. This is solid gold. What? You act like I'm this <laughs> if this were solid gold, it weighs about a pound, maybe a little more, it's hard to say. But at today I checked today's gold price is seventeen fifty an ounce. So if you do the math, you're talking about twenty eight thousand dollars worth of gold here. Of course it's not really gold, right? And it might be. I'm not gonna say, you know, you're gonna have to come check it out. But anyway, it certainly looks shiny like gold. And then here you have a truly a silver this is a silver platter right we'll say it is just go with it uh anyway and so and it's striking i mean the 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 reflection of gold against shiny silver especially if this were real gold and silver the purity of it uh, and that's the analogy that proverbs uses of a word fitly spoken timeliness a word that is needed to be said in just the right time it's a beautiful beautiful picture Another word to live by. And then honesty is obviously a word to live by. The Bible has a lot of things to say about this. In fact, twice in Proverbs, in the uh, list of so-called seven deadly sins. Many of you may realize this. There are actually only six deadly sins in Proverbs because lying is mentioned twice. That's how much of an abomination it is to the God of all truth. uh, When he says... Six things the Lord hates you. Seven are an abomination of a proud look. A lying tongue. And then he goes on to say a false witness who speaks lies. So think about that. Honesty is a word to live by. And edification. Edification. That is encouragement uh, to others. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Or again, we looked at this a moment ago in Ephesians, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification. Edification, encouragement. And then uh, the final word to live by here is evangelism. We talked about that uh, a moment ago, but remember what Paul said in in, in Ephesians, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation. So here's the takeaway this morning. Uh, we we kind of went through a theology of words. We want to pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart will be pleasing in thy sight, the way David prayed. Uh, we want to let God's incredible creation and His incredible Word, written Word, inspire us to sing praises to Him and offer praises to Him, the fruit of our lips, as Hebrews 13 says. But I think there can be no better uh, take away than simply the seven words to live by. So I hope you'll jot those down or remember them or at least think about one or two this week and you know, think about silence and knowledge and discretion, timeliness, honesty, edification, and evangelism. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for just this simple reminder from a short psalm of David in your word. We pray that indeed the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would honor and glorify You. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we have here at Plum Creek Chapel to gather together and be reminded of simple truths like this. And pray that we would take them to heart and be able to to walk closer to You, leave this place better than when we arrived because of the input and strength of Your Word in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray if there's one here within the sound of my voice that has never trusted in Your Son and our Savior as their only hope of salvation, that today would be the day they would start uh, their spiritual journey, um, their rebirth by simply placing their faith in the only one who can forgive sin and give them eternal life, Jesus Christ. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.